Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Kelly. And I'm Joshua. This is The Wrap Up, your fortnightly dose of news from all around the world. Josh, we've got some really interesting stories from this fortnight's headlines. Whilst the world has been wrapped up in news from Ukraine, there has been quite a lot happening in other regions, hasn't there? Yeah, there certainly has. So we'll be recapping news from Africa, from the Pacific, and from South America as well. Let's get stuck into it. Let's go. Cette vidéo fait partie d'une série d'images fournies par l'armée française et tournées par un avion ou un drone, en train d'ensevelir des corps dans le sable à 3,5 km du camp de Gossi au Mali. Well, Kelly, while all eyes have been on the French election over the weekend, there was another important story involving France that seemed to slip under the radar a bit. So on Friday last week, French soldiers in the African country of Mali were accused of murdering local civilians and burying them in mass graves. Le groupe de paramilitaires accusait l'armée française d'avoir laissé un charnier après l'évacuation du camp de Gossi et fait exceptionnel la grande muette... Pictures were posted to Twitter showing bodies laying in the desert sand. But within 24 hours, the allegations had fallen apart. It was revealed that the photos had actually been posted by a fake Twitter account. A tweet sent from a fake account spoke of crimes committed by already departed French forces. Then another tweet sent from the same fake account shows a video of the scene which had just been staged. And this is where things get really strange. Although it was true that civilians had been executed, they hadn't been killed by French soldiers. Instead, they'd been murdered by Russian mercenaries who had tried to plant evidence framing France for the killings. That is horrific, Josh. So they're essentially framing French soldiers for war crimes. Who are these mercenaries and what do we know about them? Well, it turns out they belong to a secret organisation called the Wagner Group. It's arguably the world's most effective mercenary army, created, funded and controlled by Russia. It acts as President Vladimir Putin's invisible hand in Syria, Libya... It was established by Vladimir Putin in 2014 to carry out tasks that are too controversial, even for the Russian military. In fact, it's been nicknamed Putin's private army, and it does his bidding across the globe. The group's present in 12 countries around the world, but first emerged in Ukraine, where its mercenaries fought alongside pro-Russian separatists, ultimately assisting in Moscow's annexation of Crimea. There's also evidence the Wagner Group is currently helping direct Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that it's reportedly tried to assassinate Vladimir Zelensky twice. In addition to that, it also helped interfere in the 2016 US election, played a key role in the Syrian civil war, carried out assassinations all around the world, and even fueled conflicts in the Central African Republic, in Libya, Mozambique, Sudan, and Venezuela. Worse still, the Wagner Group has been accused of widespread human rights abuses, including arbitrary detentions, torture, beheadings, and mass executions. Why are they even in Mali in the first place, though, especially if they've got such a horrible reputation? Well, the short answer is 
They're there because the Mali government invited them. You see, Mali has a huge problem with Islamic extremists. Since 2015, the country has been under a nationwide state of emergency because of frequent terror attacks. President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita has declared a national state of emergency and three days of national mourning in the aftermath of the attack on a hotel in Mali's capital by Islamist militants on Friday. At least the problem got so bad that Mali ended up asking France, its former colonial ruler, to provide military support. Hundreds of French troops have been deployed and French airstrikes have already driven back Islamist rebels from the town of Connor. France moved swiftly when fighters swept south. So for the last nine years, France has been sending troops to Mali. But despite costing a billion dollars a year, the mission has largely failed. The extremists still control key areas of Mali. And what's more, the relationship between France and Mali has broken down. So I guess it wasn't a huge surprise when Emmanuel Macron announced in February of this year that French troops would leave Mali as soon as possible. La junte qui est au pouvoir au Mali, après deux coups d'État, considère que ce sont les meilleurs partenaires qu'ils peuvent... The problem is, that left Mali looking for new allies, and Russia quickly stepped in to offer support. But what does Russia stand to gain from intervening in Mali, given that France has tried and failed? Well, I think there are two things that Russia stands to gain here. Firstly, it gets a political ally. And you've got to remember that Russia has very few allies left after its invasion of Ukraine. So it's been offering many African countries aid and military arms in order to win their support and their votes at the UN. Second, Mali is rich in diamonds, in gold and in rare metals. And in exchange for providing assistance, it's suspected that the Wagner Group has been granted exclusive mining rights. And if it has, that would follow a familiar pattern. In Libya, Sudan and the Central African Republic, the Wagner Group has been granted rights to drill for oil, gold and diamonds as payment for their military assistance. Money from those ventures in turn props up Putin's war chest and the Russian economy. Okay, that makes sense, but I'm still confused about why the Wagner Group would accuse the departing French troops of war crimes. So what's that about? Well, it seems the accusations are not only designed to cover up the Wagner Group's own crimes, but also to whip up anger within Mali against France and the West overall. And that in turn supports Russia's broader aim of trying to isolate the African continent from the West and instead align it with Putin's political and economic goals. The security pact was announced by China's government in Beijing and confirmed by the foreign minister of the Solomon Islands. And the details are scarce. Let's head to the Pacific for this next story, Josh. We haven't talked about news from our corner of the world in a while. That is very true. So what do you have for us, Kelly? Well, last week, China made what some are calling a strategic coup in the Pacific through its security agreement with the Solomon Islands. On Tuesday, Prime Minister Sogavari confirmed that the deal had been signed. Solomon Islands has taken a sovereign decision to broaden its security cooperation with more countries guided by our security strategy. 
Rumours of the deal actually started last August, but it wasn't until Dr. Anna Powles, a senior lecturer at Massey University in New Zealand, leaked a series of tweets with photos of the draft agreement that the Pacific powers began panicking. Wait, but how did a university lecturer get her hands on such an important document? Rumours did spread last Friday that Australia's intelligence agencies played a role in leaking the draft as some sort of last-ditch effort to build pressure on the Solomons to pull out of the deal. But we'll probably never get official confirmation of how Dr Powell's got access to that agreement. Needless to say, the deal has got the traditional powers of the Pacific pretty concerned. Even the U.S. sent a delegation to Honiara on Friday with plans to reopen their embassy there. So what exactly is in this security agreement that's got these Western powers panicking? The biggest concern is that this is the first step towards a Chinese military base in the Pacific. It talks about an agreement that would allow Beijing to deploy forces to protect the safety of Chinese personnel and, quote, major projects in the Solomon Islands. It also would allow China to request to send police, armed police, military personnel and other law enforcement and armed forces to this tiny Pacific nation. Prime Minister Sogavari has been working hard to assure the Pacific powers that the agreement maintains the sovereignty of the Solomon Islands and has rejected any possibility of a military base in the Solomons. We are not pressured. We are not pressured in any way by our new friends. And there is no intention whatsoever, Mr. Speaker, to ask China to build a military base in Solomon Islands. But, Josh, what cannot be denied is that this agreement will shift the balance of power in the Pacific. Traditionally, Australia and New Zealand and their ally in the US have been confident in their foothold in the Pacific. The Solomon Islands have great strategic importance. It's situated in shipping lanes connecting the US to their allies in the Pacific, and it was actually highly sought after in World War II for its ideal location as an airfield or a naval base. Now, combined with a huge amount of Chinese investment that already exists in countries like Tonga and Vanuatu, this agreement shows the Pacific is becoming increasingly dependent on China. But while Western nations are sounding the alarm, is there any potential upside here for the Pacific nations themselves? After all, they're getting investment and loans that countries like Australia failed to provide them. That's a really good question, Josh. While the loans may seem great on the surface, the United States is warning they're a form of what's called debt trap diplomacy. Now, debt trap diplomacy is when a country lends money to another government on pretty harsh terms, and when those terms are breached, the country who lent the money demands other favours instead. And this wouldn't be the first time China has used this tactic. The primary example in recent times is Sri Lanka. As Sri Lanka was coming out of its civil war in 2009, the country faced the extraordinary challenge of rebuilding a nation. China had the cash, and a partnership was born. But of course, China had much to gain from Sri Lanka too. The terms of the loans it had granted to Sri Lanka became harsher as time went on, 
And when Sri Lanka failed to repay its ever-growing debts, China agreed to waive the amount owing in exchange for ownership of Sri Lanka's deep-sea port. China Merchant Port Holdings is taking over the Hambantota port in southern Sri Lanka. It will give China ownership of the port for 99 years. This deal gave China control over key shipping and military routes near India, one of China's rivals. So, does the case of Sri Lanka have any lessons or predictions for the Solomon Islands? They're obviously not in the same economic or political circumstances, so we must be careful when drawing a comparison. And it's also hard to predict what China's plans are for the Pacific, but it's clear that they have some end goal in mind. We'll just have to keep a close eye, Josh, and see what comes out of this agreement. In Tunisia, where for now at least uncertainty seems to be the only certainty, a popular president continues to reassure the public, even as the political crisis deepens. Kelly, for our third story, we're going to take a look at Tunisia, which is a small democratic country in North Africa, nestled between Libya and Algeria. Over the last eight months, the country has been in chaos as the president, Kais Syed, has dismantled Tunisia's government and given himself extraordinary powers. The new provisions will allow the president to rule by decree, effectively replacing parliament, which remains suspended indefinitely. He has overturned the country's constitution, dissolved the parliament, interfered with the country's legal system, shut down the anti-corruption commission and arrested his critics. And you'd expect Tunisians to be quite concerned about this, but actually some support what Syed is doing. And this has created a bit of a dilemma for the rest of the world. How should it treat Syed? Should it treat him as a dictator in the making or as a tough reformer who's supported by voters? Okay, this all sounds quite complicated. Give us some more background info about Syed and what he's done so far. Sure. So, Kais Syed is a former law professor who overwhelmingly won Tunisia's 2019 presidential election. Joy explodes on the main boulevard in Tunis. Thousands of Syed's supporters celebrating the man who they say can keep alive the spirit of the 2011 revolution. He won on promises to clean up Tunisia's weak economy and failing democracy. And in order to understand why those promises were so popular, it helps to take a brief look at Tunisia's history. So prior to 2011, Tunisia was a dictatorship. It was plagued by corruption and unemployment, which eventually sparked massive protests. Ongoing protests in the capital, Tunis, where again today thousands have reportedly rallied, uh, demanding that the president stand down. Those protests eventually led to the collapse of the dictatorship and kicked off the Arab Spring, which saw similar uprisings in Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria and Bahrain. It was the year of people power, of revolution and bloodshed that doomed dictators. No one's going home. No one's going to go home. We're in this till the end. Even if it means we're going to die. And out of all of those countries, only Tunisia established a full working democracy. A new constitution was designed, 
a parliament elected, and there was a lot of hope that democracy would solve Tunisia's problems. But it didn't. Political infighting and corruption meant that democracy largely failed. Unemployment and corruption also remained high. So as a result, when it came to 2019, Syed's promises to fix Tunisia's democracy and economy proved very popular, and that's what ultimately helped him win. But he seems to have done the exact opposite of fixing Tunisia's democracy. Arresting critics and abolishing parliament, that sounds rather dictatorial, don't you think? Well, look, it depends who you ask. So Syed says it's all part of his plan to fix democracy. He claims that, in order to save Tunisia from a decade of paralysis and corruption, the country has to start from scratch. So he's promised to write a new constitution, put it to a referendum, and hold new elections before the end of the year. Should we believe him? Well, no one seems to know. Initially, the Tunisian people believed him. In fact, when Syed suspended the parliament just a few months ago, people celebrated in the streets. But, as he's continued to crack down on his opponents, public opinion has begun to shift. Just a few weeks ago, there were big anti-Syed protests. Chanting, shut down Kai Saeed, and freedom, end the police state. Protesters pulled down barriers blocking the roads leading to the parliament building in the capital, Tunis. These people are marching against the measures imposed by President Kai Saeed. So with the Tunisian people becoming increasingly concerned, what's the rest of the world doing? To be honest, not much. The US and other Western countries have largely remained silent. And that may be because Tunisia recently signed an important military deal with the US, which will help the US counter Russian and Chinese influence in Africa. So look, it's unlikely the US really wants to annoy Syed at the moment. And that leaves the Tunisian people largely at Syed's mercy. And I think there's two things that we can take away from this. Firstly, democracy is fragile. If democratic governments fail to improve people's living standards and are plagued by infighting, the public can ultimately turn against them. And secondly, the Arab Spring may not have been the success the West thought it was. Since it occurred, Syria and Yemen have fallen into civil war, while improvements that were made in Bahrain, Tunisia, Libya and Egypt have all been wound back. And that leaves some tough questions to ask about democracy's strengths and its weaknesses, and even what the future of the Middle East looks like. Today, Juan Orlando Hernandez, the former president of Honduras, was extradited to the United States to face federal charges. Josh, New York is about to host the most high-profile drug trafficking case in recent years. Former Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez has been extradited to the US and charged with drug trafficking, voter fraud, and illegal political financing. It's claimed Hernandez trafficked 500 tons of cocaine to the U.S. while he was president, and that he protected traffickers from prosecution. We allege that Hernandez corrupted legitimate public institutions in the country, and we allege that Hernandez worked closely with other public officials to protect cocaine shipments bound for the United States. 
Hernandez, of course, denies this. Wow, it's not every day a former president is charged with drug trafficking and then extradited to another country. So tell us more about Hernandez. Well, he's only been out of power since January of this year when he resigned prior to the recent presidential election. We chatted all about that on the wrap-up a few months ago, so check out that episode. If we rewind back to 2014 when he was elected as president, Honduras was one of the most violent countries in the world, mostly due to drug-related gang violence. It's become known as the murder capital of the world. A person is violently killed every 74 minutes in Honduras. Citizens here have taken to arming themselves in self-protection. As president, Hernandez promised to fight corruption and crack down on drug cartels. He actually kept his promise by building Honduras's first maximum security prison and changing the constitution to allow Honduran nationals to be extradited to the US to face drug charges. Wait a minute. So he's been charged and extradited to the US under the same law he put in place to tackle drug trafficking. Yep. Exactly. It's pretty ironic. So how did he go then from tackling drug cartels to actually helping them traffic drugs? Well, things really took a turn for the worse when he was re-elected for his second term. It was an election marked by fraud accusations. The election has been tarnished by allegations of corruption and fraud, deepening a political crisis. Despite all this, the U.S. still recognized the election as legitimate. The Trump administration saw Hernandez as an ally, but this position has now changed in the Biden administration. This week, U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price distanced the Biden administration from its counterparts in the Hernandez government. We are committed to fighting corruption in Honduras, uh, and we will support and work with leaders who are committed uh, to fighting corruption. So... Why is the U.S. playing such an active role in all of this? Well, the U.S. has extradited other former presidents, including the former president of Guatemala and the former president of Honduras, to face prosecution in the United States, so this isn't entirely unprecedented. Geopolitically, this indictment could be seen as the Biden administration's efforts to strengthen its relationship with new president Xiomara Castro. But let's not forget, the trial of Hernandez may bring to light secrets involving high-level officials in countries like Colombia, Venezuela, Guatemala, and Mexico. If Hernandez decides to negotiate for a lesser sentence, for example, he could throw others under the bus, which may implicate the whole region. Well, that brings us to the end of this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. Next week will be our second episode of our in-depth season on technology. Rhiannon will be chatting to some exciting guests about cryptocurrency, whether it's the beginning of a global currency, and how it could shake up the world as we know it. Until then, follow our Instagram page for news updates, quizzes, and bonus content. You can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode topic via our website. Links are in the episode description. We'll see you all in a fortnight. Bye.